All right, Deuteronomy 21, we again are continuing with, remember the, the reiteration of the law as um, this next generation is getting equipped to go into the Holy Land and getting a lot more details in a lot of these areas that were talked about earlier in um, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. So we're just going to jump right in it tonight. And uh, we're going to start in the first nine verses reading through it, and we get a law concerning an unsolved murder. So... You know, if for all of you guys into the murder she wrote and all that kind of stuff, this will be especially fascinating for you, I guess. Now, the, there's a lot of actually phenomenal application here and a picture of Jesus here in these first nine verses, as well as, I believe, an instruction for us and a reminder to us when it comes to reaching out to, to the lost. So let's read it together and we'll talk a little bit about this and then just move forward. So as if anyone is found slain, lying in a field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not pulled with with a yoke. The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley flowing with water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless the name of the Lord by their word. Every controversy and every assault shall be settled. Verse 6, And all the elders of the nearest city to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed the blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And an atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord." So again, this would be outside of the city. They come across someone who isn't just dead, but it says here they've been slain. So obviously there would be a type of investigation to determine if this man has been murdered or if maybe he just died from an accident or if he died from natural causes. I'm sure in some cases they wouldn't be quite sure. And I would have to think if they weren't quite sure, they would still go forward with this process put forth here in Deuteronomy 21. It also seems that this is regarding someone whom they don't know who has been, uh, you know, perhaps killed. You would think that if it was a member of the tribe of the nearest city, that they would be the ones to go out and to take care of that situation. And there's some other instruction we read about in cases like that. Um, But this is obviously, again, someone has been determined they've been killed and they don't know who's killed them so it says, again, the judges, and this is talking about, you know, the judges of the cities. It would no doubt be of the surrounding cities. They would basically do a step off to see who's closest to this dead body. And, uh, you know, hopefully arguments didn't come out about that of, you know, what you measured wrong. Because this is one of those things that you're like hoping probably practically that the other city has to deal with it. I mean, if we're going to be real about it. Um, but once they determine who would be the closest, uh, there was a command given, 
And again, this isn't a suggestion given, but a command by God given for whoever is closest to that slain body to go out and to deal with it. Not only deal with the body itself and burying it and uh, you know taking care of the cleanup, but providing atonement for the sin that most likely took place in the death of that individual, uh, with a person being slain, with a person being murdered. And this goes into some other areas where we've already talked about where if there's shed blood of the innocent in a land and that's not repented of, if that's not dealt with, then that blood and the ramifications or even the spiritual consequences of allowing that not to be dealt with is going to come upon that land that is either practicing the, uh, you know, at the slaying of innocent or ignoring it and just letting it, you know, it, uh, take place. And so they would have to require atonement to deal with the sin of the person who killed that individual, even though they weren't the ones that had actually sinned. So again, we read the details here where they were to take forth a heifer and uh, that's a costly sacrifice. He doesn't say take a couple turtle doves. I mean, a heifer would be on the highest scale of uh, the Israeli sacrifice system. Normally, if it were just a family, again, bringing forth an animal for Passover, remember those of the upper class of more wealth had to bring a heifer. If you were more middle class, it would be a sheep or a goat. And then, you know, a pair of turtle doves for the poor. And then even below that, they could bring a grain sacrifice. So this would be a hefty sacrifice to go deal with the sin that had been committed, even though they didn't know who committed that sin. And they would shed the blood of this heifer to cover that sin, lest the judgment of that shed blood of that murder fall upon that land. So this was a very serious uh, deal. This wasn't something that, again, they could just ignore. This was a command from God because, again, sin, if it's not dealt with, it's going to have ramifications. And as we look at this, we think about And how can we not think about the one who shed his blood for us? Again, it's a a picture of Jesus in that, again, he came and he absolutely has provided atonement for us through the laying down of his life. He's provided redemption for us. He's made that way of forgiveness of our sins through his death, through his resurrection. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, an application for us to consider in this is that, again, this would take place out of the city, and God commanded them to have a step off. Whoever's closest needs to deal with it. And no doubt the reason that that's there is because if it was just, hey, if someone's out there and they're dead and that instruction wasn't given, it's just human nature to say, well, you guys got to take care of that. It just is. I mean, let's not get all you know, super spiritual about this. This is, this is God dealing with fallen men like we are. Now, maybe, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, on a good day, you say, hey, we're just going to go take care of that. But most likely it's going to be, you know, everyone saying, no, you got to go and deal with it. So he says here, you need to step it off. And then whoever's closest, it's up to you to go and to take care of business. And uh, there's a responsibility for you to do that. And if you don't do that, then the judgment of that murder is going to come back on you. There's going to be some chastening from the Lord. 
there's going to be some correction from God. And until you go take care of it properly, absolutely, there is going to be a hindrance of the blessings that God wants to pour out upon you. So um, I think an application for this for us is that, you know what, uh, not, not, not in the sense of the, the physical, but we know outside of Christ we were dead in our sins. And there are so many people in our community, there are so many people in our nation, there's so many people in the world that do not know the Lord, that the Bible describes as spiritually dead. And we know that we have a call as the body of Christ to take the gospel of Jesus Christ out to them. And we need to know that when it comes to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, we got a responsibility. Our first responsibility in doing that is to take the gospel out to those who are closest to us first. We're responsible. This church right here and the people that make up this church, we are responsible for taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to Atascadero and North County and those surrounding areas. That is upon us. We can't put that off on, you know what, Living Waters Ministry or Jack Chick Tracks, or we can use those things to spread the gospel, or, you know what, the Unshackled Radio Program or some mega church down in Southern California. That is upon us. And this is why, as a fellowship, we put a strong emphasis on getting the gospel of Jesus Christ out to this community. This is why we do things like with the flavor ad that we talked about last week on Sunday. You know, at the gospel, a gospel track, Romans Road, going out to 38,000 mailboxes in Atascadero, uh, Margarita, Creston, um, um, uh, Paso Robles, and a few outlying areas. Every one of those mailboxes get the gospel, just throwing out more seed, you know, just throwing out more seed out there. We want to make it, as it said before, difficult for people in our community to go to hell and i believe this is absolutely biblical based on this passage in deuteronomy as well as instruction that the lord gave to the church which was in jerusalem when he ascended into heaven after his resurrection and acts 1 8 he said but you shall receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me notice where he starts in jerusalem they were in Jerusalem. So he says, you need to start right where you're at. You need to be a witness right here. And that first sermon would be preached on Pentecost when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came and 3,000 um, would be added to the church that day. He says, from there then to all Judea, which would be, you know what, outlying areas. And then Samaria, which was a little farther out. And then he said, from there to the ends of the earth. And so our Jerusalem, so to speak, is this community that we're living in right here. And so we need to be about getting the gospel message of Christ out to the lost souls in this community. We have a responsibility for that, and we're going to give an account for that. Also, personally, again, that's just as a fellowship, but then personally as well, there are people that are in your life. There are family members, there's coworkers, there's associates, there's folks you interact with and you have a call first and foremost to take the gospel to them. They're in your life in part for you to be a witness of Jesus Christ to them. For you to pray for them. For you to lift them up to the Lord. Are you praying for the people that are in your life? Are you praying for your family members, your neighbors, your coworkers? And you might say, well, none of my family members, coworkers, or neighbors like me. Hopefully that's because you're a Christian. 
not a jerk for Jesus. But at the minimum, we need to be praying for them. We need to be lifting them up to the Lord. Again, some people, you know, they don't want to receive, but that doesn't mean we can't pray. I've had a lot of people tell me, don't you pray for me. I've had, well, I'm going to pray for you. You better not pray for me. I'd be, a lot of people say that to me before. I'm thinking, oh, my prayers must be effective. Otherwise, you wouldn't be so, you know, afraid of me praying for you. Even though it's on my prayers, it's who I'm praying to. Um, and then taking those opportunities. And maybe you've gotten away from that. Maybe, you know, it's easy just to get into a, a mundane mode where it's like these people are in my life day after day after day after day. And, you know, sometimes that can be a good thing. And other times that could become an irritant, right? I mean, it's a fallen world and all of us can be very annoying but we need to absolutely own up to the fact that we got a call that our, we, this is our Jerusalem collectively, and then we all got our little Jerusalems, and it's that circle of people around us. And so hopefully at the minimum, you're praying for those folks. If you're not, you start praying for them and praying for them by name. And then you start asking the Lord to embolden you and give you opportunity to share the gospel with them. To talk to him about what God's doing in your life is a great way to do that. Oh, I can't do that because it's illegal. Well, you know what? Did someone say, how's it going? Anyone ever say to you, how's it going? Tell them how it's going. Tell them how the Lord's blessing you. Tell them, tell them what God's done for you. There, there's, all, there's all kinds of ways around the rules, so to speak. Our God is wise. He's great. He's mighty and he's powerful. And I know some people say, I'm just going to go kamikaze and get fired in the name of Jesus. Pray to the Lord. You might do that one day, but God might want you there for 10 years. And if you lack wisdom, ask him for it, and he'll give it to you. Verse 10, he says, when you go out to war against your enemies, notice he doesn't say if you go out to war, but when you go out to war, and for us, we know we are in a spiritual war, and we're called to engage that through prayer and the word and putting on the armor of God. Ephesians uh, chapter 6, he says, and the Lord your God delivers you, uh, delivers them into your hands, and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and desire, desire her and would take her for your wife. Then you shall bring her home to you, to your house, and you shall shave her head and trim her nails. Have we all read this before? <laughs> she shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house, and mourn for her father and mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free. But you shall certainly not sell her for money. And you shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. I know there's certain people that read these parts of the Bible and, oh, you know, and they like faint and whatnot. And it's like, listen, we're going to deal with reality here. When man fell, guess what came with that? Wars. What came with that was righteous wars and unrighteous wars and fallen man absolutely fighting amongst themselves and we know that god had given land to israel and he said you need to go and you need to drive out these capt these people taking that land and there would be other times when people would come against the nation of israel and god would say listen it's time to saddle up and ride and go engage in this battle now if they were canaanites they had been given instruction to wipe them all out because absolutely that was a people who was no longer ashamed of their sin and it was time for them to be judged and israel not doing that would be greatly to their detriment they would have so many problems because they did not obey god in that command but when it came to other nations we read 
I believe it was last week that if you're at war with the city, a war with the nation, you give them opportunity for peace. And if they'll take that peace, then there was a way for them to integrate them into their community through service and that kind of thing. Look, at that's just the way it's been since man fell. So this would be a case where they would go with a, be battling a nation and they would offer that peace and they would reject that. So then they would go in and listen, when soldiers go out to battle, soldiers would die. And he says, when you're warring against your enemy and then God delivers them into your hands. So obviously he's talking about a righteous war led by God. And again, these Old Testament wars had to do with preserving Israel to bring forth the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to prophecy, who went to war for you and all mankind to make that way of salvation. So he says, when you do this, and you know what, you, you, you know, just like a guy to be in the middle of war looking for chicks. You're in the battle and you see a beautiful woman. But this is God dealing with reality here because that's happened. That happens, right? Right, guys? I mean, let's be truthful about it. You're looking for a wife in the middle of the war and she's beautiful to you. So he says, give some instruction. And listen, this instruction was probably more so for the woman and protecting her than anything else. And it is so ignorant when individuals start talk, attacking the scriptures when it talks about rights, you know, oh, the Bible tramples women, all that stuff. That is utter nonsense. God's word absolutely from the beginning made provision for women and has held women in high esteem more than any other book in the history of this entire stinking world. And so God was looking out for this woman. And he says, take her home and shave her head. And you say, how's that looking out for her? Because listen, you're in the middle of the battle and you see her flowing hair and all, you know, you, know, you, you see her in that radiant sunlight and so forth. And God did not want this guy to go marry someone out of just lust for her. Take her home and shave her head and have her trim her nails. Now do you want to marry her? Now are you attracted to her? Listen, physical attraction only goes so far in marriage. It only goes so far. Should it be there? I absolutely believe that it should, at least to some degree. But it better not be the foundation because I have found in my own life, the older I get, the uglier I get. Again, Bible's real about this stuff. Go home and shave her head and trim her nails. Now, after 30 days, do you want to marry her? And then he also says, again, if you're going to, you, you know what, you, you need to be compassionate to her. Let her remove her clothing of captivity. And this be the idea of having her put on Christ, so to speak. Put on the clothing of, of Israel, of followers of the Lord, and let her mourn for her parents. Again, you don't treat her like a slave. You don't treat her like a robot of a captive. If you're going to marry her, you need to treat her like you would treat any other woman that you marry. And this is God looking out for her. Again, that woman. And then he says, afterwards, if you have buyer's remorse, because again, God knew this would happen. He knew that their hearts were hardened. And so he's wanting to protect the woman. If afterwards you have buyer's remorse, you need to set her free. You can't no, now go put her up for auction and say, well, you know, her hair never grew back, but she's a great cook. So do you want to, you know what, give me some money for her? You can't do that. You're not going to shame her. 
You've already humbled her by marrying her and not being a man keeping your covenant. That's implied here. It's basically saying, you've already punked her. That's what you've done. You didn't own up to your vows, and so now you need to set her free. Now again, this is not condoning divorce in the scripture. It's never condoned. We know that from the beginning, God meant there to be one man and one woman. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh in Genesis. And then Jesus reiterates that in the Gospels. He reiterates it in Matthew 19. The Pharisees come questioning, oh, can a man uh, divorce for just any reason? And then Jesus, again, talks about from the beginning, God made them male and female. He quotes those verses out of, uh, of, of Genesis. And then he says, you know what? That's the way it's always been. And then they say in, in uh, Matthew 19, 7, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? And he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces a wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Just like his disciples, you know, to say something like this, verse 10 the, the disciples then said, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, God, God's word's so awesome. You know, that's because there'll be guys thinking a dumb thing like that. You know, it's better not to marry if I can't just divorce her. Yeah, you got to count the cost. Because God's meant this to be, again, a marriage till death do you part. And so these laws were put in here to protect the women, to, to protect these women because he knew the hardness of their heart, they'd be issuing certificates of divorce. This is why even in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says that if you divorce a woman or you get a divorce outside of biblical provision, which would be adultery, which would be death, adultery, or abandonment, outside of that and it alludes to if someone's brutalizing his wife he's abandoned the marriage because he says let there be peace in the home so if your wife is your punching bag you're abandoning the vows that you have made towards her if you're trampling her and you know there there's an enablement of sin and there's an abandonment of the vows and every case is different don't take oh pastor steve says this so i'm going to run with it you need to get real biblical counsel not just your friend that's going to say, oh, yeah, go girl, or, you know, yeah, man, yeah, get rid of her. You know, you need to be real with God. Because I've had people take a little bit of a sermon and say, I'm standing on that, and they've twisted it and so forth. Um, God knew, though, that, that, again, they would harden their hearts so to protect the woman, he'd let them go. And, and you know what, um, the guidelines, though, were, were those things, and I know what I was thinking about. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, because God knew there would be divorce no matter what. There, there were still people that would still divorce, even though they didn't have biblical grounds. He says they're to remain single. And so if you're a Christian and you want to divorce your spouse without biblical grounds, biblically, you're to remain single. Now, there's a lot of people that don't do that, right? They go and, you know, they divorce without biblical grounds and they're believers. And then they go and remarry. Well, what do you do with that? You know, where do you go? This is a pastor. I've wrestled with a lot of this stuff. Well, listen, God's grace is sufficient. Um, you know, you get remarried and you start having kids. I, I don't believe necessarily that God will want you to break that up. 
but you better acknowledge your rebellion when you did that. And if you're plotting and planning and saying, well, I'm just going to go do this and then later on I'll get forgiveness for it, you can do that. But listen, when you twist God's word when it comes in these, with, to these things, yeah, he'll forgive and he's gracious. Praise God. Can we say amen to that? But there's going to be consequences. Because every time these fellows had multiple wives, there was always issues. I don't care if you were Abraham. I don't care if you were Jacob. I don't care if you were King David, a man after God's own heart. When he started saying, I do, I do, I do, I do. Guess what? He had five more problems than he should have. He should have just said it once. You're going to have problems with it. You're going to have difficulties. And I see people all the time that fudge the books with this stuff. And they twist it. And you know what? They, 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 they know they're not dealing in truth. And they always end up having issues. They end up having issues in the relationships. And they start having issues as well. Because until they get right with God and really own up with it, there's a type of quenching of the Holy Spirit that takes place in their life. And it's just there hanging over them. And it's like, well, you know, I want the joy of the Lord and the power of God. Why is that not there? Because you've been playing games with God. And so it's time to quit playing games if you're in that place and get on your face and really repent and really get into a right place with God so you can move forward in him and he can bless you. Verse 15. It says, if a man has two wives and loved and one loved the other unloved, think about Jacob with Rachel and Leah, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved. And if the firstborn son is of her who was unloved, then it shall be on the day that he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, uh, unloved uh, the true force firstborn. Uh, but he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now again, this was not part of the Lord's plan. He knew they would start practicing this, and this idea of multiple wives would be practiced out of a distorted faith. Out of the idea of we got to procreate because we've been told the Messiah is going to come through our genealogy. So the more kids we have, the better, not only because they can, you know, run the farm over here, but because we're going to add to our, you know, our, our stock, so to speak, of being a great mighty nation. God didn't need them to do that. God does not, doesn't need us to come and help him out in unbiblical ways in his plans. He doesn't need us to do that. And every time again, there would be an individual that would take more than one wife, it was always problematic. Listen, Jesus shed his blood on the cross and he put his foot down and he said, enough's enough. No more of this. He's gracious. He'll even give us time. And then the time comes where he says, listen, I've given you time to repent. But now that you haven't, there's going to be consequences. And God loves Israel, and all Israel will be, sweat, be saved. But Israel was scattered in 70 AD, and it was in part because God says it's time for you to be chastised because of your hard heart and your stiff necks. Now, again, he knew that they would do this, and so he put laws in place so that there would be, you know what, rightful inheritance is given. Because you know the wife that's loved would be in the ear of dude from day one saying, you better give that inheritance to my son. You better not give that to her. 
She no doubt would be around him more in intimate situations. And she would ride him. She would be, you know, pressuring him. You know what, you better, yeah, I'm the loved one. You want me to love you back? You better give the possession to my sons. And then that man will be put to the test. Are you going to honor God? Are you going to honor your wife? There's a big problem in our culture today where there's a lot of men running around and they honor their wife above honoring God. Now, there's a a lot of guys that don't do either. And that's even more problematic. But this, this culture we're living in, there's an abundance of jellyfished men that honor their wife above God. And they think that that's for their better. That's, you know, things are better because I keep the peace. No, listen, that's not for the better. We're not talking about trampling women. We're not, I am the leader here, so I'm going to drag you around. No, the Bible says that men are to love their wives as Christ loves the church, that they're absolutely to lay down their life. But listen, if a man's leading, he should be being led by the Lord and God's always going to give a little more insight and direction to whoever's leading. Doesn't make him better, but he's going to because he's going to equip you to do whatever he's called you to do. And there's going to be times when you get it because you're humble before the Lord and those you're leading might not get it. And they're going to pressure you to say, hey, listen, we don't get that, but this is what we get. So you need to do what we're telling you to do. And that's where you got to step up and go, you know what? We're going to honor God. This is the reason we're doing this. And man, a lot of men get put to that test and they fail it over and over and over again. And then they wonder why there's all these other underlining issues that just won't go away. Listen, you got to lead. You got to lead as you're being led by the Lord. And so the Lord says, listen, you need to give that inheritance to the unloved wife's kid. You need to honor me. You're going to be put to the test. Again, bad idea to marry two women in the first place. Now you're going to be put to the test. And it's interesting in Scripture, again, you, you look at a lot of places like, again, with Jacob, with Rachel and Leah. Leah was the unloved one, and Leah had a ton of kids, and Rachel was finally like, give me kids or I'm going to die, you know? And it just you know, wasn't always the case, but again, there's consequences. Do things our own way, there can be consequences with it. Outside of God's plans, that math doesn't add up. Verse 18 through 21, it says, if a man um, has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the city, to the gate of his city. And these shall say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. Uh, He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones and you shall put away the evil from among you. And all Israel shall hear and fear. Again, all these passages, you get the individuals that don't know scripture, that don't know context, run around and start having a faint, oh, you know, stoning kids and whatnot. Listen, this started with the parents chastening their son, chastening, again, their offspring. This started with an emphasis upon the parent to raise that child in the way of the Lord because foolishness is bound up on the heart of a child that's the word of god i don't care what child it is they come out with a sin nature 
And then there is, there is an incredible task before that parent to cry out to God in an effort to try to raise that kid in the way of the Lord. And man, we need great grace and mercy in that. Can we say amen to that? And, you know, so the emphasis is on the parent. And obviously this is a situation that has gotten so far out of control where this kid's rebellion and, and backsass has just become an incredible detriment upon the family where they would say he's a glutton and a drunkard. And, you know, you think of gluttony and maybe you think of food, but listen, gluttony can be a picture of just being gluttonous for anything outside of God. And that's probably more of a picture of what it was. Just a, a glutton a, for, for sin. And he says at that point, Again, the parents finally come to that place where they're like, we've done everything, and, and yet this, the sin continues. You need to take them to the elders. They're going to take them out and stone him. And he says to purge out from you the, the evil. Listen, I can't recall anywhere in the scriptures where this actually was, was uh, implemented. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something. There's many places in the scripture where it should have been implemented including King David and his own kids. You never really saw it implemented. It was a law in the books, but it was in one of these laws they didn't practice. And listen, the more they didn't practice it, the more the leaven spread in the land, the more out of hand it got. Think about Eli the priest, and he had those two sons. He's the high priest, and it says the women would go to the temple, and they would go out, and they would pick the ones they want, and they'd take them into the back room of the temple and fornicate with them. And they would go to the sacrifices and they would go and they would take the fat of the sacrifice with, with a, you know, and a big fork and that was considered the best part and they would just eat it. And Eli needed to deal with those kids and he never dealt with them. You know, he said, oh, my sons. That's what he said. Oh, my sons, these reports I hear. That ended up being to the death of his kids, Eli himself, and the priesthood that was eventually taken from his family and given to another. And so with all of this, listen, it, it, all of this is an emphasis on the incredible importance of, of absolutely crying out to God to help us to raise our kids in the way of the Lord, not to provoke them to wrath, as it says there in Revelation. I know a lot of people think that means Oh, you know, don't make your kid angry. No, that's talking about don't provoke him to hell. <laughs> don't provoke him to the wrath of God in eternity outside of God. And if you're running around not honoring God in your own home, you're provoking them to wrath. Amen. You absolutely are. And we need God's absolute help. Listen, it, it, is, it is a challenge to raise kids. And if you're younger and you don't have kids yet and you're like, I want to get married and have kids, that's a wonderful thing to do and aspire to. But listen, you better be ready to die to yourself. You better be ready to be crucified when that kid comes out of that womb. Am, am I lying? No. I'm telling you the truth, right? You, you better be ready to be, you know, I don't get sacrilegious here, but nailed to the cross because you're going to learn to die to yourself whether you want to or not. And, uh, man, a lot of people's prayer life actually starts kicking in when they start having kids. And it better. We need God's help. It's tough. Hey, I, when I have some, someone roll up on me, and I've seen this in the ministry, oh, you know, we have it all together. We have the manual on raising kids. It's like, get out of my face with that nonsense. Dude, you bet, you bet, that better start with page one. Get on your face every day and cry out to God for grace and mercy. 
Because if that ain't page one, you can take your little book somewhere else. And I've seen people, oh yeah, that first kid comes along and it's so easy. Well then, you know what? The second one comes out and, you know, they shave his head and it says six, six, five and a half tattooed right there, you know? (laughs) And it's like, oh Lord. (laughs) I'm joking, right? You get, you get the joke. Because it will wear you out. It will suck the life out of you. And you're like, oh, they'll get a little older. It'll get easier. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Dude, they start driving around and, like, doing stuff. What are you, you know, you can't pin them anymore, you know, in the corner or whatnot. Now, and you better prepare them, you know, to go out and do that. You better give them some freedoms. Oh, you know, I'm going to keep you in this corner until you're 18. Well, man, you got a powder keg going on over here. It's tough, especially in this day we're living in. And so listen, God would take no pleasure if this thing were played out. Um, you know, th- th- this is th- I think this is more for the parents. Man, the last thing any parent would want to do, even if their kid was a stone-cold glutton and drunkard, it'd be like Eli. The last thing they'd want to do is take their kids out and say, stone them. That's why I don't think you ever see it played out. What parent would rat out their kid like that? I don't say you don't see any of them doing it, right? Even the ones, all oh, my sons and the high priest who knew better. Because we want the best for our kids, right? We want to see them raised in the Lord. And so this is emphasis on us to cry out to the Lord and make sure again that we're, we're reflective of them and so forth. We ain't going to get to know chapter 22. <laughs> I, love, I love these chapters. I love, I just love, I had such an awesome time yesterday going through those two chapters in my office for like hours. Like just all the intricacies and so the wisdom in it and the application. This is like, that's probably where I've been in Deuteronomy for like how long? It's been a long time, right? Like I'm going for the record for a pastor in the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> you're like, oh, okay, we'll come back when you're done with that, Steve. <laughs> It's the most quoted book in the New Testament. I've told you that, right? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than any other book in the Bible. So listen. Finally, we'll close with these few verses. 22. It says, If a man uh, committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, um, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, for he who is hanged is a curse of God. Are you familiar with the book of Galatians? Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, it's quoting this right out of Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. All of us deserved to be hung on a tree. The wages of sin is death from Adam eating off of that tree in the Garden of Eden to the sins we've committed in our life. The Bible says you break one point of the law, you break it all. You're like, well, I didn't kill anybody. That's not deserving death. Why? Well, I've, I've lied like 50,000 times. Well, the Bible says you break one point, you break it all. We're deserving of death. We have a curse on us. There would be some deserving of death back then because they would break laws that 
absolutely the punishment was the death penalty. And if that happened, they were to put him to death because if they didn't, there'd be a curse on the land. Remember, he says here, get the evil amongst from you. Don't let that curse, you know, it spread amongst you. Just the practical side of it as well as the spiritual side of it. You got to deal with that curse. And so you got to go out and you got to go out and deal with this. You got to regulate this sin. And you need to, if they die by hanging on a tree, which a lot of them would, crucifixion wasn't invented yet. But they hung them back then. You see hangings throughout scripture. It's actually a very compassionate way to take someone's life with the death pedal. Man, it's just, it's done. That knock comes down and breaks your neck and it's finished. It ain't a strangulation. You know, I'm, I shouldn't get into those details. My wife gets mad at me when I do that. So we'll say that for men's night, I guess, or something. But listen, the curse then was put upon that person so it wasn't on the land. And we talked about this. And then before nighttime, again, being compassionate, even out of consideration and mercy towards the family of, you know, the, the loved ones of the person, they were to be taken down and then given a burial. And this is why even Jesus, when he hung upon the cross, those soldiers came to want to break his legs. And that was Jewish influence there, saying, listen, if you crucify them over here in Judea, they're not going to hang there all night because we don't want that curse on them put on us. If we leave them there all night, that curse is going to be upon us. And so they went, and remember, they broke the other guy's legs. Why? So they couldn't go up anymore to get air. They suffocated up there. And they came to Christ, and he had already offered up a spirit. He already said, it's finished. I've atoned for their sins. And he committed his spirit to the Father. And so they came, and they're like, oh, wow. They, were, they marveled that he was already passed, which implies Jesus was not some frail soy boy, but... I should forgive me. I shouldn't be saying the kind of stuff up here on the pulpit. But listen, he was a he was a carpenter. He was a yoked up dude. That implies that there they were. He, he's already dead. And so you get insights like that into scripture. And I know the enemy wants to effeminize our Savior, and 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 that's wrong. And so they went and they said his legs don't be need to be broken, but so they pierced his side. And the blood and the water came out. He was pierced for our transgressions, not only just through the nails, but through his side pierced. And on that cross, he hung there, and he hung on that tree. Because that cross was made out of wood. And listen, wood only comes from one place. It comes from trees. And he did that to become a curse for you, to become a curse for me. He took the curse that was on us, and it was placed upon him, and the wrath of the Father was poured out upon him for us. And he offered up his spirit. And again, according to the law, they took him down and they buried him. And three days later, what did he do? He resurrected and he conquered sin, death, Satan, and hell. That whoever would call upon the name of the Lord would be and will be and is saved. Isn't that awesome? And this is a phenomenal picture of it right here. Deuteronomy 21, pictures of Jesus all over the place. And God gave this to them so that, again, when the Savior came, they could see, they would know. And yet how many of them hardened their heart over and over? We've been reading about it in John. How sad. Let's make sure we're not hardening our hearts. Amen. Lord God, we bless you tonight. We praise you. We just thank you for your great goodness and mercy and love for us, God. Jesus, we thank you that you became a curse for us, that we could have salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and you alone, Lord. 
And God, we want to pray, God, that absolutely you'd help us in these things, God. Oh, Lord, we, we need your help in singleness. We need your help in our marriages. We need your help, God, in parenting and raising our children. Oh, Lord, grant us great grace and mercy. Even tonight, God, on all these here, God, I want to pray a great blessing upon everyone here tonight, God. And if there's things going on in anyone's lives here that they need to lay down, Lord, that they know they, they've been playing games with you, Lord, I want to pray you give them that extra measure of faith. You said faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Birth that in the hearts, God, to act, not to walk in fear, not to lean on their own ways, but to bring before you what needs to be brought before you to get dealt with by the hand of God that they could leave here abounding in you, God, and move forward in what you have for them, God. Listen, if you're here and you haven't called on his name, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Come to the Lord. Ask him to be your God, your Lord, your Savior. Ask him to wash you of your sins and he'll meet you where you're at. The Bible guarantees that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, bless the rest of our night. We thank you for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.